appreciate that as we prepare to lose our tactical advantage and have baby number three. Don't worry, you're all on my speed dial, so if we have another kid, you all have another kid. Um, It's community, right? Right? Anyway, but thank you for that. And then some of you have asked um, about collecting, as you did when Darcy and I came, collecting some supplies for Lucas and Allison to put in their cupboards before they get here. And if you would, uh, if you would like to do that or have questions about that, please see me or Sandy and John Forster. Um, but uh, you guys were generous in doing that when Darcy and I came, and some of you have asked if we can do that again, and the answer is yes. Um, and so if you have anything, and this would be, you know, pantry stuff, but also like paper towels, you know, aluminum foil, just think of things you would want if you're moving. Um, you can bring those next week to church, and then I'll break into the house on Monday and, and put them in there. So one of my spiritual gifts I don't talk about. But um, good. yeah, uh, they, they're, the house they're going to rent is off of Race Road. And um, so if you have questions about that, I can, I can tell you exactly where later, but, uh, but they'll be up, up around there. So the good thing is for the youth and for the parents is that if we have a youth activity, the fire department is right there. <laughs> so the Lord works in mysterious ways. Anyway, anyway, no, they're very close to the, the fire station that's right there. So good questions. All right. Acts chapter four. Let me begin by saying, and again, this is on page 911 if you're following along in one of the chair Bibles, but this is still a continuation of the story that we looked at last week, where Peter and John heal a man, they're able to share the gospel, and this is sort of the fallout that happens afterwards. And we saw them last week, and again, we focused on this idea of taking advantage of gospel opportunities taking advantage of times where we can show compassion to others, taking advantage when we are able to verbally share the gospel with someone. And we saw that Peter and John did exactly that. They stopped, and they saw an opportunity, and they fulfilled a need. But what we're going to see today in the rest of the story is that even when we do the right thing, when we are obedient to God's commands to love others, there will be opposition. Even when we're doing the right thing, there will be times when people try to stop us or to keep us from being obedient to God. Again, I shared a quote from this article last week But a quote, kingdom opportunities mean kingdom adversaries by Derek Rishmawi. He says this, I suppose that despite everything I've seen, read, and been told about Christian ministry, I still have this sense that if God is for a thing, there shouldn't be any opposition. If it's a real opportunity for the kingdom, that will automatically mean the field is clear and there are no obstacles or enemies. My assumption seems to be that if God is with me, then everything will go smoothly and all will embrace me. And yet nothing in this story of scripture leads us to believe that's true. Just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean it will become the easy thing. 
And as we saw last week, the call to do the right thing, this week we see that oftentimes there are negative consequences for doing the right thing. And we need to be prepared mentally and emotionally to endure opposition when we know we're doing the right thing. So today, again, if you're following along in your bulletin there, the big idea, when we are faithful in gospel opportunities, we will have to endure opposition. So let's look, number one there, success brings opposition. Look at verses 1 to 4. And as they were speaking to the people, again, this is a continuation of the story from last week, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So first we see, right after Peter shares the gospel with this huge group of people, that they get arrested by the Jewish leaders. That the people in authority in their country arrest them and throw them in jail to hold them for trial. And again, our mindset is they were being faithful. They were sharing the gospel. Everything should just go smoothly without a hitch. But right after, right after we read that they share the gospel, they get thrown in jail. It's like if, if I'm here giving a sermon and then right when I'm getting into my car, the cops come, put me in handcuffs and throw me in the squad car. That's the picture. And again, that sounds so foreign, but that's what the early church experienced. These faithful people experienced right away that, that they're preaching about Jesus got them arrested. And it's very clear that that's why the leaders arrested them. Look at verse 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This story is very clear. They have done nothing wrong except preach Jesus. Now part of that is a lesson to us that's going to come up again and again. That that the goal of my life is to live such a blameless life that the only negative pe- thing people can say about me is I talk about Jesus. It's a wonderful goal, and, and that's the goal, and that's, and that's what Peter and John present to us here. That the only charge can be brought up against them is preaching Jesus. But even when we are told... They're thrown in jail. Luke tells us the fruit of their actions. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now this could be understood in two ways. First of all, this could be adding on to the 3,000 from Pentecost, in that, so we have another 2,000 who are come to faith in Christ. But it's also possible, and some say probable, that 
this was another 5,000 people who came to Christ. Now again, both, both are huge numbers. Both are amazing miracles of God. But I think they support the fact that Peter and John are still doing the right thing, even though they're experiencing hardship. Because again, the temptation is, if I experience hardship, I must be doing something wrong. And sometimes that's true, but at other times it's not. And here we see God blessing the proclamation of his worm so that thousands more come to Christ. But in being faithful to proclaiming to the nations the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter and John have to go to jail. Now, this gives us a certain amount of humility in our ministry. Because Peter said, look, I didn't heal them. It was God working through me. But that also in God granting repentance and belief to thousands more were to understand the same thing. That it was God working through them. That any success we have is God working through us. And so it's humbling. It keeps us humble. But at the same time, God works through us. And so when we are faithful, he will bring about people who believe in Jesus. And so it's both encouraging and humbling because it's God working through us. So I, I don't have to make someone believe. I, I share Jesus and God will change hearts. And it's humbling because it's not about me and it's encouraging that it's not about me and that it's God, the God of the universe working through me. But it's this success. It's that the people were being obedient to Jesus Christ that causes them to be thrown in jail. But we're also going to see in this story, number two in your outline there, that opportunity because of opposition. So just like healing the lame man gave them an opportunity to share the gospel, so will getting arrested. They're going to have an opportunity. This is like what we'll see later in Paul when they, they'd shackle a guard to him. He would just convert the guard because he had a captive audience. I mean, can you imagine being chained to the apostle Paul? He'd talk your ear off. And he was smarter than you, so you'd get annoyed really quick. But again, this is a part of understanding opposition, that it's something to be endured, but there's also opportunity through opposition. So, so let me first read verses 5 to 7. There, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? So they are brought to a courtroom by the most powerful people in their country. Again, this, this gathering of the councils would be like for us if you took the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the legislation branch and put it all into one branch, one group of people. That's who they're talking to. Some of the smartest, most influential, maybe the wealthiest people in their country. 
and they have to face a courtroom filled with those people. People with all of the power, and there's just so much pressure because these are the leaders of your nation. And you have to defend yourself to them. But in verse 8, we see that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that Peter is going to share the gospel with them because he is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that you and I have. And so when Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 to 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now some people take this to mean you should just never, you should just always wing your sermons Um, because when you wing it, then the Spirit empowers you and you should all be thankful. I mean, you can't even imagine if I just winged it each week. But, yeah, thanks Glenn. (laughs) But what it's really saying is not just that impromptu sermons are the only Spirit-empowered sermons, but rather what it's saying is there's a comfort that when you don't have time to prepare. I mean, the picture here, and it's what happened to Peter and John, that they were snatched up by the cops, and they didn't have time to write any notes. They didn't have time to prepare their defense. You know, in other countries across the world, again, we're very fortunate we don't experience this, but there are some countries in the world where the police kick down your door and take you to some jail who knows where. And even in those times, you don't have to be anxious because the Spirit is empowering you to preach Jesus. And guess what? If he's empowering you then, then he's going to empower you when you're having coffee with your neighbor. If I can trust the Spirit to help me to speak to the most powerful people in my country without ever preparing, without some notes or a teleprompter, which they get, which doesn't seem fair, but if the Holy Spirit empowers me there, why don't we think he empowers us to walk across the street and have a cup of coffee with a neighbor? The same Spirit that empowers Peter, empowers you. And sometimes we forget that because we call these guys like St. Peter and St. John and they wrote books of the Bible and that's very true. But that doesn't mean they have a better Holy Spirit than us. So when you don't have time, when there are these high stress positions, when there's that family member that you know you need to talk to about Jesus, but they become belligerent and you're just trying to get words out, God will give you the words to say. And he will empower you just as he empowered Peter. So you don't have to fear preaching to government officials. And you don't have to fear sharing Jesus with your neighbor. But as Peter speaks, again, empowered by the Spirit, 
he does so in two parts. First, that the man was healed through Jesus. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And notice what Peter does there. He says, let me, let me get it straight what I'm actually in court for. What am I guilty of? Let me just get this straight, that I'm in fact being charged for doing something good. Look at verse 9 there. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. He points out, he speaks truth to a situation. He says, I'm not here because of a crime. I'm here because I did something nice. And again, it's this standard of living, living lives that are so Christ-like that the only thing we can be charged with is being nice people. And he's able to call them out on that. He's able to speak truth into this high-stress situation. And notice, and, and we'll see this later on too, they never deny that. They never deny the fact that they brought them in because they did something good to someone else. And again, this is my goal for myself and for us as a church, that, that any criticisms against our church would be because we are doing good things for people. I would love to hear that criticism. I would love to read an editorial. You know, that would be Evangelical Free Church. They have been helping too many people. But we see the irrationality of the enemies of God. That they're angry about doing something good. And even in their anger, they cannot stop God's work. And again, we see the description of Jesus there. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Again, he's beginning his gospel explanation to them. He's saying this healing was done through Jesus because then he goes on, he says, not only did Jesus heal this guy, that not only is healing found through Jesus, but that you can be saved through Jesus. Look at verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now again, he's talking to the most powerful people in his country. And he begins by quoting his Bible. In verse 11 there, the, the, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. This is an allusion to Psalm 118. And these were some of the most educated people in the country and they knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> these were the experts in the Old Testament law. 
These were the smartest, most educated people in the country. And here comes this common guy, as we'll talk about a little bit later. And he says, you know that Bible that you're the expert on? Your Bible tells me that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And again, he just doesn't come up with his own opinion. He goes to God's word to preach the gospel. This Jesus whom died and rose again, that in verse 12 he comes to the climax of his speech and he said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You guys got it wrong. You condemned God's Savior. You condemned the only way of salvation. And there is no other way to be saved. He is boldly and clearly sharing the gospel with these people of power. So, so what are they going to do? He called them out on the charge. He said, you guys have just brought me in here because I've been doing good things. And by the way, uh, you guys were instrumental in killing the Savior that God sent to save you. Again, speaking to the most powerful people in the country. So they have to talk about it. And in verses 13 to 18, that's exactly what we have. We're, we're a fly on the wall as to what they said. And what we're going to see, again, if you're following along in your outline, that opposition tries to stop God's work. And the first thing that they notice is that Peter and John are ordinary men. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. That again, sometimes we forget that the guys we sometimes call St. Peter and St. John were, were ordinary guys. When, it's calls them, um, when it calls them uneducated, we, we would probably translate into, they, they probably graduated high school, but they definitely don't have any degrees or any higher learning, again, as the people they're standing before would have had. These were the experts and they're looking at this guy with a high school education speaking. It'd be like if, if, if I was a high school graduate and I'm lecturing Congress on how to do laws. Okay, that's sort of, the, sort of analogous there. So one, they're shocked because number one, they, they can't really refute what these guys have been saying. And again, another sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But in addition to recognizing that these were common, ordinary men, which many of us, I'm sure, feel like, and, and that there's an encouragement that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things because he's an extraordinary God. And some of you think, well, I can't share because I don't know all the answers. I can't share because they might ask something I don't know. But Peter and John were ordinary guys who served an extraordinary God. And so they could speak with boldness. And while they didn't 
go to higher education, the leaders knew something else about them. Look at the end of verse 15. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they might not have gone to law school or medical school or gotten their PhD in law, but they'd spent time being taught by Jesus. And again, this is something that all of us have. Again, maybe you just think of yourself as ordinary and you don't think you could do anything like this, but you have the same spirit as Peter and John, and you too can be taught by Jesus because we learn from Jesus from his word. Again, part of understanding these stories is understanding how we can fit into these stories. That, that just like Peter and John, God will use us too when we are obedient. And he will empower us by his spirit. We are able to go to his word and find truth to speak to people. And we do not have to be afraid to share the gospel. We don't have to be afraid to share the truth of Jesus Christ. Because we've been given everything we need. So they recognize that they're with Jesus. And then in verses 14 to 16, they even admit that a miracle had been done. Like verses 14 to 16. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. So again, they're thinking, what, what do we do with Peter and John? What do we do with their message? Because they, we can't deny the miracle. Because the guy was right in the courtroom with them. <laughs> and again, when we think about our obedience to God, especially in acting of compassion. I, I want us to be doing actions of love that cannot be denied. That we are so loving to others that people, while they think we are crazy, can't deny that we're loving people. Again, what a wonderful standard for our lives to be so loving that it cannot be denied. Now, yes, there are times when, when the loving thing will not be recognized as the loving thing. Classic example, one of my kids reaches for the stove. I hit their hand away. Do they understand that that was loving? No. Yes, there are cases like that. But again, a goal of godliness for us is to be so loving that our love for our neighbors and for our community cannot be denied. Again, and I think that we are taking advantage of these things. I look at our MOPS program. I look at the Bounce Mania and the Fall Festival and the upcoming Thanksgiving community dinner. These are great opportunities we are taking. We're taking them out into the community. And, and I don't think it can be denied that it's a loving thing to give someone food or to give their kids some free bouncy houses. 
You know, so we are taking advantage of these things. And that's part of the reason I want to talk about the opposition that comes because I think we are, by the obedience of God, we're doing things out in the community and we need to be ready for opposition. And so they can't deny that the miracle had been done. So, like a three-year-old, the only thing they can come up with is stop it. <laughs> Look at verses 17 to 18. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So when you can't win an argument, just say no. This works for kids, at least until they're bigger than you. But, but again, notice that's all they can do. They can't refute anything that they've said or anything they've done. And all they can say is knock it off. Stop teaching about Jesus. But what they don't know or what they don't want to, they don't want to know is number four in your outline there, that opposition cannot stop God's work. Opposition cannot stop God's work. Look at verses 19 and 20 first. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So opposition cannot stop the work of God because opposition does not stop the people of God. And Peter and John say, look, we hear your command, but we can't follow your command. We can't stop preaching about Jesus. But notice how they say it. Because again, a part of this is the respect that they show to the government authorities that they're speaking to. Look at verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So they flip it on them. And they say to these people, again, who were not only the political authority of the nation, but were also the religious authority of the nation. And they turn it on them and they say, look, you guys decide. Is it better for us to listen to you or to listen to God? And obviously the answer is it's better to listen to God. And again, that the religious leaders of that time did not see it. It had to be told by common men that it is better to obey God than to obey this counsel. But opposition doesn't stop the word of God also because they, they couldn't punish them. Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what has happened. They can't punish them because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of popular belief. So here you have this great contrast. Peter and John say, we, 
if God and man disagree, we have to listen to God. And the leaders are listening to other men instead of to God. And there's this great contrast of them doing exactly the opposite thing. And again, because they care more about popular opinion, they're not obedient to God, and so they really can't do anything. All they can do is say, stop it. Which, as we're going to see, not very effective. And again, as I've said, said before, that Peter and John lived such lives that they couldn't even make up a charge against them. Their conduct in private and in public was so godly that the only thing they had against them was talking about Jesus. And again, what a wonderful goal for our lives that the only thing negative about us would be that we talk about Jesus. And even though that the council remains hard-hearted, opposition does not stop God's work because the people who saw it can't stop praising God. Look at verses 21 to 22. And when they had further threatened them and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I think we're told his age because it proves it's a miracle. This guy has not been able to walk for 40 years. It wasn't just a sports injury that had to heal. And even though the most powerful people in the country denied the miracle, at least in their hearts, they refused to believe it. Even though the most influential, highest status people were against Jesus, the people still heard about Jesus and still responded appropriately. That no matter, even if the government is against sharing about Jesus, people will still hear and believe in Jesus. You see this in some of these closed countries where the government is so against any proclamation of the gospel and believers are still made in those countries. So no matter if the council's against Jesus, as we see in verse 21, people are still praising God. You cannot stop the work of God no matter how much power you have. But again, we need to be ready for when we do share the gospel, there will be opposition. Now there's a question of civil disobedience in this text. What do you do when the government or someone in authority commands you to do something that is against what God wants? And I think there are three principles from this text on when that happens. The first one is that it is obviously against God's commands. That there is a command in the Bible and an opposite command coming from the government authority. And we need to make sure that what they are saying is in fact against the word of God. Number two, nonviolent. Remember, this is the same Peter who when Jesus was arrested cut the guy's ear off. Notice he willingly went when arrested. 
he understood that that disobeying was not to be done with a sword, but with words. And number three, they honored the government structure. They show respect to the officials, but they also accept the consequences. So if you disobey the government, they may throw you in jail. They may fine you. And Peter and John willingly go to jail when they're arrested. But what I think is interesting is, again, thinking about Peter, one, that, that he chopped a guy's ear off and now doesn't. But the same Peter who's being arrested for just speaking about Jesus also wrote in his letter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The same guy who got thrown in jail for just preaching about Jesus is the same guy who said, honor the authority to those to those whom God has given authority. I mean, it changes our reading of 1 Peter. I mean, it's all nice to say honor the government when they don't do anything bad to you, but this guy, he was thrown in jail just for preaching about Jesus. And in the same breath, he can say, honor those in authority. Lately in the news, uh, there was a question about the mayor of Houston. And if you've been, been following this, that the mayor of Houston or some attorneys working for her that she didn't know about, but anyway, um, we'll know how likely that is. But they sent out a, a subpoena to pastors in the Houston area. I, I believe it was five pastors. That's the latest number I've seen but they subpoenaed from the pastors, and I quote, all speeches, presentations, or sermons related to hero, it's an ordinance that the pastors um, fought, with, fought against with a petition, the petition, Mayor Anise Parker, homosexuality or gender identity prepared by, delivered by, revised by, or approved by you or in your possession. So what happened in Houston was the city passed an ordinance that, among other things, if you self-identified yourself as a certain gender, whether or not biologically you are that gender, you could use any bathroom you identified as. And so there was this petition, and there were some pastors involved in this petition. <coughs> Excuse me. And they sent the petition. They got over 50,000 signatures, but the mayor's office determined that they did not get enough because there were some problems with the petition and so they said it was an invalid petition. So then there was a countersuit made to say no in fact it was a good petition. And then the subpoena came out for sermons related to the mayor, uh, gender identity and uh, the ordinance. Now since then they have tighten the language 
And you can read about that. You can find that on Google. But it comes with the question. If you were a preacher and you got a subpoena for your sermons from the government, what do you do? Either way, there's consequences. So you send them. So they subpoena them and say, you, you, you send them. What if they read something in there they don't like? There could be negative consequences. Or you could decide not to send them, and again, there's negative consequences. And part of our understanding is to how, from this text, do we understand what to do? Because in both cases, there's opposition. In both cases, the, the mayor's office is coming across as opposing what these pastors are saying. And again, this is happening in Texas right now. And so we need to be prepared for opposition. Now, it might not, I don't know if anyone's ever going to subpoena my sermons. I feel sorry if they have to read all of them. But, you know, this is happening today in our country. And so while it might not come through a subpoena, we will have some sort of opposition. And we have to know God's word so we can know how to respond. And in fact, that's one of the questions for the small groups is to put yourself in the place of these Houston pastors. What would you do and why according to this text? And I think that'll be some great, great discussion. I look forward to that. But again, coming back to this idea, because I am so pleased with how we are responding to the opportunities we have in the community. I am so pleased with us being obedient to God's commands to show compassion, to share the gospel. But when we do that, there will be opposition. And there will be opposition we have to faithfully endure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the bold witness of Peter and John who, empowered by the Spirit, spoke boldly the truth to those in power over them. And God, that as we take advantage of gospel opportunities, that we will prepare ourselves individually and as a church, that we will have to endure opposition. And we don't always know what that will look like. And we thank you that we live in a country that opposition is not as great as in other countries. We pray for our brothers and sisters where they fear daily government opposition of getting their door kicked down in the middle of the night and getting arrested. But God, that you would prepare us in our country to remain faithful witnesses even in the midst of opposition and that we would be obedient to you even when there are consequences. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please.